Welcome to What in the World. I am Ryan, being joined by Andre. Andre, it's been a minute since we've done our What in the World. Uh, last Friday got, got past us a bit as we were coming off of a fantastic Aspen Security Forum, uh, where we had a, a great conversation uh, with a wide variety of individuals and attended some awesome panels and speaking events. And so uh, we'll be releasing some content related to that. But how have you been? What's going on in San Diego? I've been good. San Diego is so boring compared to DC, in all honesty. Like, it is so boring. <laughs> the weather is consistently the same. Uh, it was 63 degrees yesterday. It's 78 degrees right now. Uh, it is so boring. Like, in DC, I was walking past the White House and Joe Biden was coming home, and I saw Mark Milley, and I saw Condoleezza Rice, and all these cool people, and I saw the Capitol and these museums, and here I see a beach, and that's it. Oh, well, you know. Some of us in D.C. might be envying you as our weather is getting quite cold here um, and we have no beaches in sight, really, other than, you know, I guess the beaches of the Potomac, but that doesn't really count. That's a river. Um, but it is a river, <laughs> but there's still beaches. There's still, there's still sand. You, you do know, although, you know, Ryan, something I saw found really cool, that landing at Reagan Airport, damn, that's a good landing or a good takeoff. <laughs> it's off. a great view. Like yeah. we took off and I looked, I was sitting on the left side of the plane and you could see the Pentagon just beautifully illuminated and all of that stuff. So yeah, you live in a nice city, man. And I'm hoping to join you soon. Thank you. I, I hope you do too. And I'm glad you enjoyed your time in DC. Uh, but anyway, enough uh, reminiscing. I'm sure no one wants to listen to you and I talk about that. Um, let's talk about what's happened in the past week or really past two weeks because we've missed uh, quite a bit. So where do you want to start? So, Ryan, I have some big surprise news for you. A Bolsonaro, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, is a liberal now. Well, I feel like that's a misnomer. There's no way. Well, get this. So, Bolsonaro has not generally been in a political party uh, for the last two years. But now he's just sort of basically cemented this agreement with the Liberal Party in Brazil. Capital L Liberal Party, which is a centrist party. Uh, because he is really trailing in the polls uh, in 2022. He is uh, not doing so well. And former Brazilian president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, who is a leftist, he was uh, president between 2003 to 2010. He's basically leading Bolsonaro by a decent amount. And Bolsonaro's image has not been helped by his denial of COVID all the deaths that have been happening with regards to COVID. There is so much that's not really going well for Bolsonaro. Again, we mentioned a few weeks ago uh, that Senate, I think, recommendation of Bolsonaro be charged for basically crimes against humanity for all the Brazilians who had died due to COVID. So this is basically a play to survive politically. That's exactly what it is. And uh, this will likely prove unsuccessful, um, but it's certainly quite a tactic. We it's it's just uh it's sad to see that Bolsonaro is not only calling that any any outcome that is not leaving him in the presidency is a a a bad election outcome or maybe some fraud or just no no different than what we saw in the United States or in Israel where we have strongmen claiming um election fraud um and so he's kind of preempting that by trying to build this coalition which will not even coalition just trying to join this party which will inevitably fall through um so Anyway, moving on from Bolsonaro, because I just, I'm, I'm looking forward to the day where we don't have to talk about him. <laughs> Let's talk about Russia, Andre, my, my uh, favorite country to talk about. Um, and there's been quite a lot of buzz about Russian troop movements on the Ukraine border 
the Ukrainian defense ministry has said that there's about 90,000 Russian troops uh, stationed right across its easternmost border. And we, we've seen this before. And so back in the spring and in, in April, if you all remember, there was an increase in Russian troop movements uh, near Ukraine. And this really, you know, frightened those in the region. It frightened NATO. It, it caused concern uh, in Ukraine, of course. They've been, the Ukrainians have been fighting a war against uh, separatists backed by Russia since the invasion in 2014. And so uh, Russia has been engaging in all these malign actions against Ukraine ever since. And troop movements is just one way to kind of signal that it's still there, that, that Ukraine should be paying attention and that the West should also be wary that any sort of engagement, deepening engagement with uh, Ukraine will be met by some sort of action by Russia. And uh, this is signaling. And it might be, I mean, I've seen reports um, by a lot of Russian analysts saying that this could be indicative of a potential offensive at some point. Yeah, so I mean, according to Ukraine's defense ministry, they said that there are about 90,000 Russian troops at the border, which is a, a big number. Uh, Blinken, I think, has warned the Russians, you know, don't make any dumb moves, basically, because you will be making a serious mistake. And, quote, any escalatory or aggressive actions would be of great concern to the United States, of course. Ryan, uh, I think William J. Burns, our CIA director, was actually in Moscow last week. And and interestingly, I mean, a brief aside, uh, Burns has been quite public in terms of making these very diplomatic trips as CIA director. You typically don't see this. I mean, we have uh, seen CIA directors, you know, enter into public meetings, diplomatic meetings with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the broader Middle East. But uh, as we all know, Burns is perhaps our most famous diplomat alive, who was not a secretary of state. He should have been a secretary of state. But uh, he also was meeting in Russia. And uh, Ryan, how similar do you think this could be to the 2014 offensive? Uh, So there are no indications right now that it looked anything like 2014. And just back to Burns really quickly. So he knows Russia in and out, and he's met with Putin a lot. He served as ambassador to Russia. He served uh, in Moscow in the region before. And so if you're going to send anyone, I, it definitely makes sense to me uh, to send someone like Burns, uh, who is not the, you know, the diplomatic kind of face of it. And so he's kind of less of a, of a figure. And it, it, it's a quite an interesting signaling that the US is sending a CIA director, also a, a former senior diplomat as well. But if we talk about compare, comparing 2014 with today, there, there are very little comparisons that you can be drawing right now, in my opinion. You can draw comparisons to what we've seen in in the past, the recent past. So um, in in April and other times in which Russia has increased troop movements, they do a lot of war gaming um, in in that kind of area. And and they've been sending in a lot of uh, armored vehicles and resources through Crimea. Uh, But again, it's hard to tell right now because there is very little that Russia and again, in my opinion, could gain from another uh, invasion or incursion into Ukraine, right? They're already sanctioned. Uh, It's certainly possible that the US and Europe could engage in even harsher economic um, sanctions or other mechanisms to put pressure on them, especially with, I mean, with energy prices being kind of um, struggling right now and and prices going higher, Russia does have the upper hand as a resource, as a resource, dominated country. And so, of course, we know that Europe is dependent on Russian natural resources. Uh, But at the end of the day, I mean, even though 
Putin and, and the Kremlin are facing domestic struggles, I, I don't think that they'll have the the required boost from any sort of Ukrainian incursion. I mean, it was always analysts always said that Ukraine was a, a multifaceted benefit and a net benefit for Putin, but it certainly at the time. But if you look at today, I mean the the kind of the the lasting effects of the 2014 invasion and even the war in Donbass right now in the easternmost part of Ukraine is not faring well. Um, there are, I mean, Russia's economy is in shambles, and a lot of people attribute that to the the after effects and the sanctions that came after. And so, I'm not sure Russia's economy could could undergo another bout of being cut off from the West. Jeez, I mean, that sounds that sounds intriguingly frightening. But uh, I mean, I mean, what are your predictions, man? I mean, like, what do you think could happen? Like, what's your personal prediction? If you can offer a personal prediction, oh no, I'm I'm always happy to give my opinions on on all this stuff. And what I'll say is that don't expect any sort of action in the immediate term. I, I can't imagine it's happening. There's enough pressure being put on on the region anyway, with this kind of migrant crisis in in Belarus and in the in in Poland as well, and in some Baltic countries. Um, and so there's a lot of eyes on the region right now anyway. And yeah. given that there's th- these negotiations over over resources, I, I I don't see any sort of active Russian military engagement in Ukraine. There could be support of deepening deepening support of separatist movements, um, other ways to kind of subvert Ukrainian sovereignty. Um, but something that we've seen in like akin to 2014, I, I can't imagine would happen anytime soon. It doesn't seem to be in the cards, but I could be wrong. No one really saw the, the annexation of Crimea coming, so who knows? Yeah. Ryan, I want to pull our attention to Africa because we've been talking about Ethiopia quite a bit. Uh, I think last week and this week now, we've seen basically the, the Tigrayan sort of rebel groups that we've been talking about for so long. They're basically within about 200 miles of Adisa. Ababa, which is the capital of Ethiopia, uh, the prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, is, I think, really uh, afraid right now. Uh, he has been, they're trying to get as many people as they can to mobilize to get the uh, to get basically to defend the capital. And the U.S. and African Union and other countries are trying to work expeditiously hard to try and figure out if there's any way we can get a ceasefire. So Andre, we talk, we've we been talking about this for on and off for a year. I mean, and I can't believe it's kind of gotten to this point. At, at one point, we were thinking that this would be turned into just a, really a, just a destruction, a massacre of, of, the, of the Tigrayan people, but that has kind of turned on its head. And now there is kind of an offensive into the uh, territory held by the Ethiopian government. Um, but they're, they're look, it looks like a ceasefire might be in the cards. So Ethiopia's government has outlined some of their terms for a, a ceasefire. Also, there are two rebel groups now we're talking about. So there's the TPLF, which is basically the Tigray People's Liberation Front, uh, which is basically claimed to represent the Tigrayan minority, which is in northern Ethiopia. Now, they're in a coalition sort of a partnership with the Oromo Liberation Army which is from the Oromia region and all of them together both sides are linked up 200 miles north of the capital 
So that's a bad coalition for Ethiopia's army. It's a, again, any sort of sorry, Ryan, no, 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 you're, you're exactly right. And I'm glad you brought it up to kind of explain more in depth what the situation looks like, because it is looking more and more grave for the Ethiopian government. And again, there, there's been a lot of things said on both sides of this. I mean, we're, we're not here to talk kind of way either side, but what it will be is a, a catastrophe for the Ethiopian people. Um, because you're, I mean, you're, you're, yes, they're now absolutely. trying to get just ordinary people to enlist in the, in the Ethiopian military in order to defend territory. And so this is going to be, I mean, a, a prolonged civil conflict if there isn't a ceasefire any, some, sometime soon. And the, I mean, the international community, I, I can't believe there hasn't been more action. I mean, there are certainly steps that can be taken. And Nobel Peace Prize winner, Abiy, the, the leader of Ethiopia, is not a good guy. He won the Peace Prize because of the peace he forged with Eritrea, but he has been very bad, very bad on the Tigrayan issue. Uh, but I mean, whether or not the capital falls to the rebels, it's really open and it's really up in the air. Uh, the capital, the, the mayor and the leading government have like urged citizens to take up arms and try and figure out how we can defend the capital. but. Uh, I mean, the, the Tigrayans and the Oromo Liberation Army, I mean, if they take the capital, it, it may not work out so well for them. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. And so again, I think everyone should pay attention to what's happening there, just because it's, uh, it's a civil conflict that is turning quite, quite sour very quickly. And of course, it's a humanitarian disaster. And so uh, very important to pay attention to that. And it also kind of shows that even though you could get a Nobel Peace Prize, uh, you could still do very bad things in your own country. I just want to point out one more thing. Speaking of Nobel Peace Prize, Ryan, uh, F.W. de Klerk, uh, the president of South Africa who won the Nobel Peace Prize with Nelson Mandela, has died. Uh, Ryan, we all know F.W. de Klerk. Uh, he was basically the president who ended the apartheid system, although there were questions among many in South Africa as to how sort of genuine or truly he felt, you know, in his act of repudiating apartheid. But South Africa in the 1980s was very much, you know, what's the word? Very much a pariah on the world stage, right? Very much a pariah on the world stage. And de Klerk realized that in order for South Africa to re-enter the world stage and to be accepted in the international community, he had to end apartheid. And of course, the rest is history. Nelson Mandela became president in 94 and so on. So I just wanted to point that out as well. Yeah, I, I think it's important to note that, again, that's an important piece of history. And uh, it's a, his legacy uh, will be debated for a very long time. Yep. All right, let's uh, turn to Iraq, where the prime minister uh, has survived an assassination attempt. Uh, basically, and again, this is being attributed uh, to Iranian-backed groups uh, that an explosive-laden drone targeted his residence in Baghdad. And so he, again, came away kind of unscathed. Uh, his residence was damaged in it. And so uh, it, it really, it, what we're seeing, Andre, is just the, the usage of, of advanced technologies like drones to carry out these targeted strikes. I mean, we've heard this, whether the assassination of, of, of you know, Iranian <laughs> leaders <laughs> to this attempt by uh, uh, likely a and allegedly an Iranian-backed group against the Iraqi prime minister. Uh, and so this was, I mean, in a very secure area uh, of Iraq. I mean, this is at the southern gate of the, of the green zone where there were 
there's a standoff. And so uh, this is incredibly uh, concerning. The U.S. State Department, of course, condemned the attack as, as an apparent act of terrorism. Um, and what, what this kind of shows is that the, the internal security struggle that ir- Iraq currently faces. I mean, again, the U.S. did a lot to build up the security forces, but still they are struggling with, particularly with Iran-backed groups, uh, to secure areas. And we know, of course, that U.S. troops have been the target uh, of attacks within the country in, in the recent uh, months and years. Yeah, and there was a very contentious election, basically, that had happened in Iraq. And the pro-Iranian groups had lost uh, quite a bit in October in those elections. The prime minister, obviously, uh, you know, on the other side of that political aisle. But clearly, tensions are at a breaking point in Iraq right now, as if they weren't always at a breaking point. Yeah, just a, a quick uh, quote I want to bring up is that the, the Secretary of Iran's Supreme National Security Council condemned the assassination attempt and said that the incident must be, quote, traced back to foreign think tanks or agencies, close quote, that have, quote, brought nothing but insecurity, discord, and instability to the oppressed Iraqi people through the creation and support of terrorist groups and occup- on occupation of this country for years, close quote. So, hmm, <laughs> blaming foreign think tanks and uh, foreign agencies uh, for the attack is quite interesting. As always. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Ryan, uh, Germany is experiencing a fourth COVID wave. Basically, a lot of unvaccinated people are getting COVID right now. It is not so good. uh, But I mean, we're seeing COVID, of course, raise its ugly head across the world in many places. I know Sri Lanka is about to go through a fourth wave. I think right now cases are sort of coming up slightly ever so. But uh, COVID is still here, Ryan. uh, And it is concerning. It's incredibly concerning. And I mean, we've seen countries engaging in harsher and harsher restrictions because of this. And so it's just, I mean, it's inevitable that there are going to be lockdowns in certain countries. I, I can't imagine that the United States goes through another lockdown. But I mean, at what, 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 what is to be done if, you know, a lot of a bunch of the population does not want to get vaccinated and they're so susceptible to contracting it and also giving it to other people? Uh, it's incredibly difficult to manage this. Um, but I, I think through time and as more people get vaccinated, um, that it, it shall be overcome in some way, uh, though it's probably never really going away from us. It'll probably be like the seasonal flu. It'll, it'll be like a seasonal flu and you get like, you'll get like an annual booster or something like that, Ryan. I, that's my hypothesis, honestly. And I mean, we have the technology to save these lives. We're getting these, you know, pills by Merck and Pfizer. We have boosters. We made miracle vaccines in such a incredible amount of time, and yet people still refuse to take them. And we need to educate those people to help them understand why the vaccines are good for us. Uh, Andre, I do want to bring up COP twenty six, so the, the the global climate summit uh, in Glasgow. Interesting kind of development that I just saw um, today is that on Wednesday the U.S. and China announced a an agreement at the summit, and so. If you kind of look at the top two greenhouse gas emitting countries, they are the United States and China, which account for forty percent of the annual carbon the output. Powers. Right, exactly. And so they they are the biggest carbon uh, emitters, and so they've agreed to cooperate on limiting emissions. Uh, again, important to so you know deal in semantics. Cooperate on limiting. So they haven't actually. There's no real agreement. It's just an agreement to work towards something to address the global the global climate crisis. And so, again, the, the, the COP26 conference 
was the whole goal of it was to accelerate the reductions of emissions. And the, the goal from, from Paris uh, is this below two degrees um, and the target of 1.5 degrees. And so it's nice to see that, I mean, that China was engaging with this. It, interestingly enough, Xi Jinping did not attend, uh, but almost every other world leader was there, um, which I think is a, an important signal, I guess, kind of demonstrating China's seriousness or their, their, how serious they take uh, the world effort to combat uh, climate issues. But yes. it is nice to see that they are engaging with the United States on yeah. this. And remember, Xi wasn't there just because China, his leadership of China is in a very precarious situation right now, right? Like he's trying to go for a third term. Uh, that's not been the norm since, I think, uh, Mao, really. So Xi is trying to go for a third term. He's trying to consolidate power around him. And there are a lot of political stakes for him so that he needs to deal with at home. But the fact that China and the U.S. even agreed to come together on this, it's pretty big, I think. It's, it's pretty big. I mean, it's not necessarily where we need to be in terms of the actual goals set forward by the Paris you know, Climate Accord and so on. But it is progress because we need cooperation. Because, you know, when you look at the emissions by China and India, uh, the U.S., we are trying to get them to cut emissions. But at the same time, they're looking at the U.S. and said, like, hey, you've already developed. We are trying to develop right now and you're trying to limit us from developing. That That's a no-go for us. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's a very difficult thing to find cooperation on climate change, but hopefully we find this cooperation. Otherwise, we'll all be underwater in San Diego and D.C. Uh, we certainly will be if we don't you know, take uh, harsher action against it. Uh, Andre, I do want to mention uh, uh, Xi Jinping uh, and the uh, party uh, plenum, plenary session, the sixth plenary session that's been taking place uh, and is probably over by the time all of you are listening. But they did pass a what they're calling a historical resolution, which essentially analysts are saying is going to cement Xi Jinping's power yes. and his status in their history. And so, as you said, you know, it's the first pass since Mao Zedong uh, in 1945. It's only the third of its kind. I mean, the second was Deng Xiaoping in 1981, where we've seen uh, this kind of action, the, the centralization of, of this kind of power. And so, uh, I again, it's it's looking like we're going to have present for life Xi Jinping, uh, or as long as he certainly wants to take it. And so, and that is really just, a, I think, a shock to many people who have been studying China, not necessarily a shock in the immediate term, but if when you look at the long term of China, I don't think anyone saw this coming from Xi Jinping, whose rise was kind of atypical. Um, but it is, he certainly will be well, the leader of China for the foreseeable future. I don't know if no one, I don't know if no one ever saw it coming, but remember, uh, Deng Xiaoping, the uh, paramount leader throughout the 1980s, uh, you know, he came to power in 79 after the chaos that uh, happened after Mao died uh, in the mid 70s. And he was basically like the godfather of China until he died in 1997. He had the whole hide and bide strategy, right? That China would hide and bide its power. It would build itself up economically, it would build itself up politically and militarily. And now with Xi Jinping, you're seeing the end of hiding and biting. You're seeing China come out on the world stage. That's basically what's happening, right? It's, it's basically what's happening. Uh, I just saw an article on CNBC, actually. Uh, Xi Jinping is expected to uh, 
basically extend an invite uh, to President Biden uh, for the Beijing's uh, Olympics in 2022, the Winter Olympics. Uh, well, it's, it'll be real interesting to see if President Biden accepts or declines the uh, the invite. Obviously, declining the invite would not be good for, uh, well, not in, in terms of the relationship, right? Like it'd make the relationship much colder to decline the relation to decline the invite uh accepting the invite would certainly uh, draw some political ire at home for president biden yeah bipartisan so, members of congress have called for boycotts <laughs> yeah so that's going to be a bit of a complicating factor uh do you think he'll go i can't imagine he'd go no i don't see it he'll maybe kamala harris will go or you know blinken or someone someone will probably go but there's no way Joe Biden goes. Because remember, it's the Olympics, so it's going to be very uh, intriguing. Uh, I mean, we had who went for Sochi? Did anyone go for Sochi in 2014? I don't. I don't remember. I don't know. I don't think uh, someone. I don't think anyone that high level. I'm sure there were. You know, someone from the State Department went, but I don't think any like real high level officials went. Not that I can remember. I mean, sure, there were certainly a lot of like European leaders there. There was a presidential delegation, basically, that uh, went. So I think Janet Napolitano went, uh, Michael McFaul, uh, Billy G. King, Billy Jean King, and uh, w- William J. Burns. He actually okay. went for the closing at Sochi. So you never know. Maybe the CIA director will go again. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I mean... If President Biden goes, hopefully there won't be any pictures of him at the 2022 Beijing Olympics like there were of President Bush at the 2008 <laughs> of Beijing Olympics. Ryan, uh, you should look up those photos. They are fantastic and hilarious. Bush at the Olympics in 08. All right. Well, that's exactly what I'm going to do after we get off this podcast. Um, Andre, we have a lot of, uh, we'll, we'll end it here, but we do have a lot of great things happening this month. We just had a fantastic episode come out with Uh, former CIA director and and former general uh, David Petraeus, where we talk about the fall and withdrawal from Afghanistan, his thoughts on it. Uh, And of course, we have two other great episodes with him that you guys uh, should just take a look at just to kind of get a fuller perspective on Afghanistan. Uh, And then this coming Monday, Andre, would you like to preview our fantastic episode with uh, Farah Pandit? Yeah, so we have Farah Pandit on. She is uh, basically a world-leading expert in countering uh, violent extremism. And uh, we talk a lot about her career because her career has really evolved as the U.S. understanding of, say, Muslim communities has evolved uh, in the 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and 2020s. So it's a really great episode. Ryan, can I also preview the next episode or should I wait on that? Uh, you can give him a little sneak peek. We have another big general who's quite famous uh, having to do with Afghanistan who will be on the show. Uh, and he has a new book out and we will tell you that when it when we record it. Yeah, for our for our, you know, very engaged listeners, he's been on before. And so if you want to you know dig through our archives, I'm sure you'll be able to f- be able to figure out who it is. <laughs> and And we're very excited because I think this month, Ryan, November. Uh, it's really been focused on Afghanistan, really been focused on Afghanistan. We started the month with Gina Bennett, a uh, CIA analyst uh, who really worked on sort of writing that first warning about bin Laden in 93, Al-Qaeda and so on, and like how we sort of came to 2001 and that September 11th moment, right? 
we had Petraeus come on, who has had long experience in Afghanistan, dis distinguished experience on both the intelligence and defense sides, talk about his reactions to the fall of Afghanistan. We have Farah Pandit talking about countering violent extremism. And then we had this other general who had quite a bit of experience in Afghanistan. So. And we also have a former Biden administration official who ran the special immigrant visa program to talk about that as well, which is something that we've talked about with everyone about Afghanistan, the importance of helping those who helped us. And so a great kind of month talking about such an important issue, something that has, in my opinion, been a defining feature of the administrations thus far. Yeah, a defining feature of uh, many administrations, really, over the past 20 <laughs> yes. years. So Decades, exactly. Yeah. First Veterans Day in 20 years without the Afghan war. The war had to end, and it did. And again, we've talked about all the ways in which it's the implications of it, the good, the bad, but uh, it is Veterans Day, the day we're recording this. And so uh, I do want to say thank you to all of those of, of those you listening, maybe those in your family uh, who have served. Um, it is certainly the, the greatest honor, the highest calling. And so we are yes. very appreciative of you, you know, serving our country to protect our national yeah. security. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ryan, uh, that's it for us. And we'll see you on Monday. <laughs>